This is The Rounds Table. Hey, Rounds Table listeners. This week, we bring you a hematology-inspired rapid-fire episode. We had initially recorded this back in February, and in Canada at least, COVID was just starting to pick up then. Before we knew it, and everyone knew it, COVID really took over, and we actually never got around to releasing the episode. Well, here it is now, better late than never. Enjoy. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. What do we have in store for today? Well, John and I are going to be doing a rapid fire related to hematology, articles about hematology relevant for the general internist. John, all set? All set, ready to go. All right, perfect. So why don't you tell us about the first article you're going to be discussing today? So the first article was published in CMAJ of January 2020, and it's the Incidental Lymphopenia and Mortality Study, a Prospective Cohort Report. This was by Warney et al. Gotcha. And what was their research question? Well, they wanted to know, is lymphopenia associated with mortality in outpatients? All right. And, you know, lymphopenia, low lymphocytes, I guess, but that sounds kind of blah. Why is this important? Uh, Well, there's been a lot of evidence so far to show that lymphopenia is associated with other disease processes, cardiovascular disease and malignancy, infectious disease. And there have been other studies done looking at, you know, could lymphopenia, a relatively simple blood test, simple blood finding, perhaps even predict mortality in the general population. Gotcha. Okay. So what was the study design here? This was a prospective cohort study. Patients were recruited from 2003 to April 2015, and they were from the suburbs in and around Copenhagen, Denmark. These were patients aged between 20 to 100. They were white of Danish descent. And at time zero, they submitted questionnaires about their health and lifestyle. They also underwent a physical exam with blood work being done, and that included the white blood cell count. Now, for the exposures, lymphopenia was defined as below 2.5th percentile and was age-adjusted because there is an age-related decline in lymphocyte count. They also grouped those with lymphocytosis, and they defined that as the top 2.5 percentile. And then the reference group was basically everyone else. For the outcome data, they were able to link deaths from a central database on all participants who died before April 19th, 2018. They looked at all-cause mortality, but they also then subclassified by types of death. Uh, They were looking at a number of covariates, and they picked those that are most associated with all-cause mortality, and they included, you know, pretty common things. So uh, smoking status, alcohol use, BMI, do you have diabetes, those kinds of things. They also looked at some covariates that are associated with lymphopenia, such as CRP, which was also measured, as well as the neutrophil count. And then with regards to, you know, the analysis of the data, they looked at all-cause mortality modeled using a Cox proportional hazard regression. Gotcha. Okay. So essentially what we have here is a group of individuals from Copenhagen. They were followed from 2003 to 2015 at baseline. They all had a CBC done and they grouped people into the lowest two and a half percentile or the top two and a half percentile. And the reference group was anything in between. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, these Danes are incredible at a lot of things, and cohort studies is certainly one of them. All right, so uh, what did these patients look like? Uh, Well, to that effect, they had over 100,000 patients included, and remarkably, none of them were lost to follow-up. Some had to be excluded by virtue of the fact that they emigrated, 
But essentially, for lymphopenia patients, they did tend to be older. Average age was about 68. 55% uh, of them were male. Uh, but they had similar, you know, median blood pressures, cholesterol levels. There were higher rates of comorbidity amongst those patients with either lymphopenia or lymphocytosis. And the follow-up was for a median of nine years. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And the fact that of these 100,000 patients, only 456 emigrated and left Denmark. I went to Denmark for a week this past summer. I didn't want to leave either. So uh, that makes sense to me. All right, what were the main results? So after adjusting for age and sex, the hazard ratio for all-cause mortality was 1.63 with confidence intervals between 1.51 and 1.76 for lymphopenia. They also did a multivariate analysis and the hazard ratio for all-cause mortality was actually the exact same. So 1.63 with the similar confidence interval. Kind of interesting that, you know, after adjusting for everything else, the point estimate and the confidence interval were unchanged. But regardless, they did see an interaction between lymphocyte count and age. So the risk estimates for lymphopenia and mortality were actually more pronounced among those patients that were at or below the age of 70. And then, you know, they did look at some cause-specific mortality, and the largest effect was seen for the risk of hematological cancers, with the hazard ratio for that being 2.79. Gotcha. And, and again, for our listeners, if you're unfamiliar with the hazard ratio, all that is is a ratio of two different rates. So when you hear a hazard ratio of 1.63, we're talking about a 63% higher rate of some outcome in people with really low white blood cell count um, compared to those with normal white blood cell count. All right, so it seems as though lymphopenia really matters, but what are some limitations here? So there are a few things to consider. I mean, this is observational data, and by virtue of that, there are a number of considerations. Uh, you can't exclude any residual confounding. Sure, they did try to account for covariates thought to be most likely to correlate with mortality, but of course, there's going to be a lot of other factors to consider. Uh, this was a one-off measure of the lymphocyte count, and so you don't have any consideration for how things may have changed over time and if that even mattered. Uh, there was also concerns about a healthy volunteer bias, but that would probably bias things towards the null, so if anything, making the result less impressive. And then, you know, this was a population of Danish descent, and really everyone was of white background, so not as much ethnic variability. Yes, and, and by not as much... We would say zero. Zero, yeah. yes, absolutely none. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, those are important limitations. And it was a great paper, but it was also frustrating because you're giving me relative risk. Give me an absolute risk. What is the absolute risk increase of these bad outcomes? And again, is it really lymphopenia? Or is it just the fact that you haven't diagnosed this person with some serious condition? Mm -hmm. Anyway. What's the take-home point? They show that lymphopenia is associated with an increased risk of all-cause mortality. And uh, is it practice changing for you? Will you be ordering a CBC on mom and dad and uh, all your closest friends? You know, this isn't practice changing per se. I think it's a reminder that we need to think through your differential for lymphopenia and that, you know, often we're seeing patients that are in the hospital for other reasons, but think through, okay, can I explain why they're lymphopenic? And if not, consider working them up then or down the road as an outpatient. Yeah, fair point. I, I think 
uh, a definite pearl that uh, Ophir Murad taught me was, you know, the association between lymphopenia and, for example, HIV. And yeah. I think you're right that we shouldn't just ignore it. We should maybe think a little bit more about it. Yeah, think about the clinical context. Gotcha. So um, next up, I'll be talking about a study entitled Risk of Venous and Arterial Thrombosis in Non-Surgical Patients Receiving Systemic Tranexamic Acid, also known as TXA. And this is a systematic review and meta-analysis published in 2019 in thrombosis research by colleagues at McMaster, Dr. Deb Siegel being the senior author. What was the question here? Uh, so quite simply, does tranexamic acid increase a person's risk of thrombosis? And the second question, how about mortality? Okay. And why was this important? I think in GIM, especially in the emergency department, we see lots of patients who are bleeding and the bleeding can be life-threatening. And in some scenarios, tranexamic acid can be life-saving. You know, tranexamic acid is an antifibrinolytic agent that acts by blocking the binding of plasmin to fibrin. What does that mean? I'm not completely sure, but according to Google, essentially it's preventing the fibrin degradation, so preventing clot breakdown. But a recurring teaching point that I was told as a resident and med student is, oh, be careful with TXA because it could cause clotting. Fair enough. So how do they design this study? So good old fashioned systematic review and, and meta-analysis. And I think, you know, the people at McMaster are among the best at, at doing these types of studies. They included randomized trials of non-surgical patients and they compared tranexamic acid, IV or oral versus placebo or no tranexamic acid. And the main outcome events they were looking at were DVT, PE, and then thinking about arterial thrombosis, myocardial infarction, stroke, as well as all-cause mortality. And they meta-analyzed the data using a random effects approach, which is pretty standard and pretty darn appropriate in this case. Okay, so what did the studies look like? Yeah, so they reviewed 4,300 titles slash abstracts and included 22 studies. Among those studies, there were 50,000 patients. The average age ranged from 24 to 69. Half of the studies were of IV, tranexamic acid, six were oral, and the rest was some combination. In terms of why were people getting uh, TXA, so for two studies, it was leukemia-related bleeding. For three studies, it was gastrointestinal-related bleeding. For two studies, it was heavy menstrual bleeding. For four, it was postpartum bleeding. And for eight, it was uh, intracranial hemorrhage or neurologic injury. And I should mention up front that the most common dose was a one gram bolus and then one gram over eight hours. It's also crucial to think about a follow-up. And on average, follow-up was about three months for the included studies. Okay, so fairly diverse kind of clinical presentations. Uh, what was the main result? So the main results... For the primary outcome of looking at the risk of thrombotic events, of the 22 studies, five reported at least one thrombotic event. The relative risk was 1.10 with a lower limit of 0.7 and upper limit of 1.7. So this is something that we would say, you know, there's no clear association. There's no clear evidence of an increased risk of a thrombotic event. And we can break it down by the type of thrombotic event. And whether you individually look at myocardial infarction or PE or DVT, it's relative risks pretty darn close to 1.0. For all-cause mortality, there were 12 studies. The relative risk for all-cause mortality was um, 0.92 with an upper limit just below 1. We don't have a lot of information about the absolute risk difference. And then they also did some subgroup analyses where they looked at studies at low risk of bias. And if you just focus on those, the results were almost identical. 
Okay, pretty interesting. Now, what are some of the limitations? So I, I think, again, similar to the first study, it's one thing to give a relative risk, but what you want for your patients is an absolute risk. You know, you say there's a, let's say, a twofold increased risk of something. Well, maybe it went from one in a billion to two in a billion. Yeah, that's a relative risk of two, but that's an absolute risk difference of one in a billion. So I would have loved to see a bit more information to that effect. Another important limitation is the generalizability. You know, these are non-surgical patients, but most of our listeners aren't surgeons, let's be honest. So I think for us, it fits well. And then finally, there were low event rates within the individual studies. Meta-analyses are great in that it combines the power of the individual studies but still, if you have studies with very few events, your risk estimates by definition will be a little bit unstable. Um, what's the take-home point? Tranexamic acid does not increase a person's risk of clot. So, you know, that point that I was taught quite a few times is probably incorrect. And uh, now's the time to translate this knowledge into practice and beyond. And uh, yeah, practice changing for you? It would be, but... I mean, I had Michelle Schulzberg as a teacher, so I already knew this, so it was practice affirming, but otherwise it sure would be. Uh, all right, John, so back to you. What do you have up for us next? So next, we're gonna be looking at a paper called Antiplatelet Therapy After Spontaneous Intracerebral Hemorrhage and Functional Outcomes. This was published in Stroke in November of 2019 and was by Murthy et al. All right, what was the research question? They wanted to know what is the impact of antiplatelet therapy on intracerebral hemorrhage outcome? Yeah, and I mean, I can think just in the past few months of seeing patients who recently had an intracranial hemorrhage, but they sure as heck have strong indications to be on an antiplatelet. So this resonates well with me, but uh, how about for you? Yeah, exactly the same. So a lot of patients with ICH do have strong indications to be on aspirin or Plavix for their other comorbidities, be it coronary artery disease, peripheral arterial disease, stroke. Uh, but we also know that spontaneous ICH is commonly associated with poorly controlled blood pressure. And so these things go hand in hand. Clinically, it can be a bit nerve wracking as to, you know, when should you resume this patient's antiplatelet therapy after they've just had a bleed? Yep, I'll buy that one. So what was the study design here? So this was a cohort study that actually involved three separate observational studies. The first was a single center study of ICH from Mass General. The second was called the VISTA ICH database, which was individual patient level data from ICH trials. Mm. And then another one was from a Yale University longitudinal database. Uh, to be included, the patients had to have non-traumatic ICH and no previous ICH, uh, 18 years of age or older, and follow-up had to be available up to 90 days. They excluded those with secondary causes of bleed, be it trauma, vascular malformation, tumors. Also, if they came in with a stroke and had a hemorrhagic transformation, that was excluded. And they also excluded patients on prior anticoagulation. The exposure of interest was any antiplatelet therapy that was started after the ICH. And the main outcome was all-cause mortality, as well as a composite of death or major disability. And they looked at the modified Rankin score, which we've talked about before, giving a marker of kind of more moderate to severe disability with those of four or six being considered and that was looked at 90 days after the event. Now, one of the issues with analyzing the data was that there were some institutional data sharing restrictions. So each cohort had to actually be analyzed separately, but they then meta-analyzed the hazard ratios from the three studies. All right. Interesting. So, you know, we have these individual observational studies and then perhaps some individual level data from a trial. Um, but amongst all of them, we're looking at 
you know, the implications of restarting antiplatelet after intracranial hemorrhage. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So what did these people look like? So in the Massachusetts general cohort, it was about 1,800 patients. VISTA was 760. And the Yale longitudinal study was the smallest, about 200 patients. The mean ages ranged anywhere from kind of 65 to 87. 55 to 63% were men. As expected, there were high rates of hypertension, so 70 to 83% of the population. The mass gen trial had more people with prior stroke coronary artery disease. And then antiplatelet therapy prior to their ICU ranged, you know, anywhere from as few as 2% of patients to as many as 33% of patients. The median times from ICH to then starting back the antiplatelet therapy also varied. So in the Yale study, the median time was within seven days. In the Mass General study, it was 11 days. And in VISTA, the median was 39 days. Gotcha. And what did they find? So in the multivariate model, Antiplatelet therapy after ICH was not associated with mortality or the composite of death or major disability in any of the cohorts. So the pooled hazard ratio was 0.85 with a confidence interval ranging from 0.66 to 1.09. So no clear significant association. They also showed that antiplatelet therapy was not associated with death or major disability compared with those not on antiplatelet therapy. And there was no association with mortality when they then stratified by uh, hematoma location. Gotcha. And main limitations here? Again, this is another observational study. So there's always considerations around uh, confounding, certainly confounding by indication. You know, those patients that were started on or restarted on antiplatelet therapy um, probably were done so because there was pretty compelling reason to do so. And so just by virtue of the fact that the data is observational, there are always going to be limitations around that. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, the risk of immortal time bias creeping in here as well is not insignificant, you know, it's so hard to know when should you restart the anticoagulant after somebody's had a hemorrhage. For me, I usually get a couple scans and if it is rock solid stable in conjunction with either my neurosurgery colleagues or neurology colleagues, that's a time when I would consider restarting it. But that's tricky. Anyway, what's the take-home point here? Uh, so antiplatelet therapy after ICH was not associated with mortality or severe disability. All right practice changing? You know, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I'm still going to be getting input from my neurology, from my neurosurgery colleagues, but I guess this just does make you feel a bit more comfortable knowing that you can restart antiplatelet therapy at some point. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, I'll just ignore that nail on the head pun and I will move on to the last <laughs> study. So um, this is entitled Development and Implementation of a Quality Improvement Toolkit iron deficiency in pregnancy with maternal iron optimization, aka iron mom, a before and after study. And the senior author here is none other than Dr. Michelle Schulzberg, published in 2019 in PLOS Medicine. Iron mom, that's a great name. So what was the research question? Research question was, how well can iron mom, which is really this quality improvement kit aimed at identifying iron deficiency in pregnancy, how well can this work to identify women who might be undiagnosed with iron deficiency who are pregnant? And could we perhaps even improve upon their clinical status? This seems important for a lot of reasons. Uh, what did you think? So iron deficiency in pregnancy, as I learned by reading the introduction to study, is a common problem. So, you know, 15% of pregnant women in somewhere like Canada or the US 
And iron deficiency can affect mum, early labor, severe fatigue, as well as baby, low birth weight, as well as it can affect long-term development and achievement of various psychomotor milestones. So with this in mind, it's clearly an important problem and it's also quite treatable. Just give them some iron. However, there's a lot of knowledge translation that needs to occur because I think there's a lot of assumptions that pregnant women are tired because they're pregnant or having symptoms related to the pregnancy itself when instead it might be because they're iron deficient. That's very fair. Okay, so how did they design this study? So it was a prospect of quality improvement study. And the toolkit I alluded to included clinical pathways for diagnosis and management, um, educational resources for clinicians and patients, and then templated laboratory requisitions and standardized oral iron prescriptions. This all took place at uh, St. Michael's Hospital, so a single center study uh, within the OB clinics. And these resources, essentially, the goal was to make it easier to do the right thing, whether that be order a ferritin, and if it's low, prescribe them iron. And then they retrospectively extracted lab data of all the women seen in these clinics over time, uh, as well as data from the inpatient delivery ward. And they compared pre and post implementation of the toolkit the following. So rates of ferritin testing, the proportion of women with a hemoglobin below 100, uh, the proportion of women who received a red blood cell transfusion during pregnancy, and the proportion of women who received a red blood cell um, transfusion postpartum. So the pre-intervention period was 2012 to 2016, post-intervention was 2017. Very cool. Now, what do these people look like? Yes. So I know they were pregnant for sure, and therefore probably 100% women, um, but we don't have a table one with the sort of usual clinical characteristics to, to sink our teeth into. So 100% women, 100% pregnant. Okay. Uh, what was the main result? So it's really impressive. The rate of ferritin testing, you know, before and after uh, implementing this toolkit rose tenfold, which is pretty amazing. And finally, a study that gives some absolute numbers. So we're talking sort of, you know, eight per hundred patients per month to 80 per hundred per patients per month. That's remarkable. And it jumped immediately after the intervention initiated, which obviously makes you think it was truly from the intervention. They also observed a lower proportion of women with a hemoglobin less than 100. So it went down from 14% to 11%. So a 3% absolute reduction, which is pretty darn impressive. And a slightly lower proportion of women receiving a red blood cell transfusion during or after pregnancy. And we're talking about a half percent absolute reduction or so. Those are pretty impressive results, considering this was all based on kind of this standardized toolkit. Now, what were some of the limitations? So, you know, we talked about the pitfalls of observational studies. And then also in a scenario where you have this pre-post, the obvious question is, well, was it this toolkit or did something else change? Was there something else that happened? And in this scenario, the fact that the change was so abrupt and timed almost perfectly when the toolkit was deployed, I think it's probably the toolkit. Other issues here is this is single center. How well is this going to work in other centers? We don't know. And then there's always questions about the, you know, long-term sustainability. You know, what happens when the grant runs out or the energy runs out? Is there a system in place so that this will be sustainable? Yeah, sure. Okay. What's the take-home point? If you are pregnant, 
go see your doctor and ask for a ferritin. I like really strongly believe that maybe not all women who are pregnant should get a ferritin, but almost all women who are pregnant, I think should get a ferritin. Yeah, it almost begs the question. And I think it was also a nice reminder too of this point that not all patients with anemia, you don't have to have anemia to be iron deficient. And so it's a good reminder of that as well. A hundred percent. And that's the other major barrier here. People might see, you know, tired pregnant patient, hemoglobin 101, well, it's above 100, it's a three-digit number. No, if they're feeling tired or if they're just pregnant in general, get a ferritin. If the ferritin is less than 50, this woman probably has iron deficiency. Perfect. And yes, it is practice changing for oh, me. Yeah. Is this gonna change your practice? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> strong believer, strong believer. Okay, so good stuff. What do you have for us? Uh, so for the good stuff, I'm hoping that this won't need to be an issue anymore, but you know, this novel coronavirus is really front and center over the last few months. And a lot of comparisons have been made between it and SARS. This article that I'm gonna post on the website is from 2003. And it was written by a Toronto physician, Dr. Mark Chung, who's an internist at Sunnybrook. And it details his personal experience as both a healthcare provider, but also then as a patient when he acquired SARS about what his experience was like. And it's really just a beautiful read. So I'd recommend checking it out. Awesome, that sounds very powerful and I'll have to check it out. You know, my good stuff, as is usually the case, it's related to animals because of course my partner is a veterinarian. So John, have you heard of teacup giraffes? Uh, like a mini giraffe? Teacup giraffe. Teacup giraffe. Teacup no, giraffe. I have never seen or heard of one. Perfect. So it's completely made up. So you're not a liar. That's good. And two individuals made teacup giraffes up and they made them up to teach people about basic statistics. You know, what's a mean? What's a median? What's a mode? How do you determine the spread of the data? What's covariance? What's correlation? What's standard area? A uh, standard error, pardon me. And all around this story of this made up species called teacup giraffes. I will put the posting or the link on the website because it really is a great read. Enjoy. Cool. Very cool. I'll have to check that out too. Awesome. And then finally, you know, some bad news for the rounds table, but some good news for John Fralick. So John will be moving to Calgary by the time that this is aired. He'll be starting as an assistant professor at the University of Calgary and a general internist at Foothills Hospital. Yes, the show will still go on, but we'll just have to figure out how to do it over the phone or, or something to that effect. Thanks a lot, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it. No worries. Congratulations. And until next time. See you guys then. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.